you know, today it's a connected world. We could be having this conversation on Zoom, but, you know, one of the big barriers was also how much sales meant travel. And, um, you know, I think some of those legacy issues have gone away, but I think people don't recognize that they have gone away. And so, um, you know, those careers still suffer. Um, I think you can be a good, successful B2B salesperson today without being on a plane every week. Great experiences build great leaders. Great leaders build great teams. This is Building Great Sales Teams. All right, guys, thank you for joining the podcast again this week. We've got Shruti Kapoor this time. She's the CEO of Wingman. They're helping companies sell better. They're assisting, auditing, and analyzing every sales calls through an AI engine, which gets you real-time insights on sales performance. Uh, Shruti herself has sold $1 million in revenue personally and was selected for a Y Combinator program, raised funding, hired a team, and recently got acquired by Clary, a predictable revenue platform. Her mission is to equip every salesperson with their own Jarvis, since her favorite Marvel character is Iron Man. Shruti, welcome to the show. Thanks, John. Great to be here. Awesome. I love uh, the mission there because I read that in your profile about Iron Man. Iron Man is my second favorite hero uh, behind Batman, but both of them, neither one of them have powers. You know what I mean? And so I love <laughs> them as as heroes because they didn't need powers to be heroes, right? Absolutely. Did you dress up as one during Halloween is going to be my question. <laughs> <laughs> no, for Halloween, I was actually Luke Skywalker. This Because we do a family a family uh, Halloween costume every year. So we were Star Wars this year. And so I was Luke Skywalker, another hero. And yeah, he's, he doesn't have any power. So or I'm sorry, not Luke. Uh, Han Solo. I was Han Solo. Got it. Got it. <laughs> All right, so this was a this was a tough intro to write, and um, the reason it was tough is because you have so many accolades and so many amazing things that you've done. So I'm particularly excited about this episode to kind of dive into all of that. Um, but seriously, you've obviously accomplished a lot at a young age. What would you kind of attribute that to? Where did that Where did that come from? That drive. Um. I think a lot of that starts with, you know, where you start in life uh, versus where you want to end up, right? And depending on how big that disparity looks like, I think uh, you pick up your pace uh, is how I would describe it. So I actually, um, you know, was born and grew up uh, in my early years in a really small town in uh, North India. Um, you know, it's, it's not a place where, uh, you know, either you hear about girls necessarily getting a lot of education, um, you know, broadly, um, not a very well-to-do economically backward place. Mm -hmm. And so I think uh, growing up, uh, of course, I was privileged, uh, you know, to be born in a family where, you know, my father and my grandfather uh, were doctors. Uh, but I think growing up, uh, the contrast that I saw um, around me and, you know, where my uh, parents wanted me to be, uh, was pretty big. And I think uh, I was very cognizant of that. Um, and in some sense, I think I accelerated and 
I wanted to make sure that I I knew that in many ways education was going to be uh, the savior and the way out. Um, so I think uh, spent a lot of time uh, and effort uh, on that, and um, you know that took me places. Um, also, I think the second experience was uh, the fact that I went to study in Singapore at a very young age without my family. So at the age of 16, I went there on a scholarship and spent almost the next decade there. And that experience of, you know, one having to be um, independent and, you know, responsible for yourself and two, having to live in a place which was culturally um, and in every other way so different from where I had spent uh, my life until then, um, you know, I think also kind of put more pace uh, on that. Um, yeah, and I think uh, thirdly, I did, my first corporate job was in uh, investment banking, which uh, I think just- <laughs> uh, <laughs> Accelerated it. Everything. <laughs> yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I wonder, did you have a lot of pressure to get into medicine or did they support- you know, your field of study that you had when you went to Singapore? Yeah, so I think definitely my father wanted uh, me to be a doctor, uh, you know, also I'm the youngest child of three. And so he was like, okay, you know, the first two didn't do this, you're kind of laughing. <laughs> um, so yes, but, uh, you know, I wriggled my way out of it by choosing a field that was somewhere in between. So I did my undergrad studies in biotechnology and I was like, hey, you know, it's a little bit of biology. I could still do like cancer research. Uh, and, you know, it's like all of the other tech stuff that I like doing. And so that was my, uh, you know, negotiation midway point. I love that. So uh, I noticed, you know, I was checking out your LinkedIn profile, doing a little research on you. And I noticed that your, your history, you had a lot of history in business development, which I love because, you know, most of the softwares that are out there right now for sales, um, they come from, I guess, technology centric backgrounds, you know. And it's not necessarily sales centric, but you did business development for uh, several companies. Uh, kind of talk about that. Is is that where you developed kind of your, I guess, systems for for sales or the the sales process? Um, I think the first kind of experience of sales uh, for me was with Morgan Stanley in investment banking itself, and. What I realized, and you know, actually, investment banking internally is organized um, in two teams, right? There is like what they call a coverage team, which is essentially business development, and then there is an execution team or a delivery team. And I was on the coverage team, and you know, what I saw day in and day out was, uh, you know, basically, in a sense, a long sales process, right? There was the relationship part of it. There was the trust building part of it. And then, um, you know, there was, of course, the solution finding part of it, right? So um, I think through that process, I really began to recognize the importance of sales, you know, across whatever it is that you are doing. Because up until that point, coming from a very technology-focused background and brain uh, of my own, I, I was kind of in a similar boat. And then I think, uh, of course, my next few roles were all in business development, which was much more directly about, you know, working with companies. And because these were, you know, not directly sales with business development, it meant a lot more, you know, the longer cycles, 
understanding people's perspective, understanding the challenges, understanding the problems, the multiple layers to it versus mm-hmm. you know, a direct sales process. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, all of those um, definitely brought together uh, sales for me. Um, I must say that moving from a business development, a more partnership, enterprise type of role to a more direct B2B selling role, which was what um, happened with me in my previous uh, role at Pioneer, um, I, I realized some of those challenges as well, right? Like those two things in many ways are actually very different um, in terms of the motion, in terms of the skill set. So, so yeah, I think I would say the entire gamut uh, of sales experience from uh, small, quick B2B deals mm-hmm. to large multi-year uh, partnerships and uh, enterprise selling cycles. Yeah, I love that. And then developing technology to support other salespeople in those efforts. So I noticed you went from associate at Intellectual Ventures to director. What was that, I guess, journey like for you? You know, you spent four years as an associate and then you, I'm, I'm, what I'm assuming is you got promoted to director at that point. Now you're managing people. How did your, I guess, how did your mindset change from being a salesperson to a manager of salespeople? Yeah, so um, actually uh, that switch involved multiple things. So one was that I was also then managing the entire India office and operations for intellectual ventures. So what that meant was that I was no longer just like helping figure out, um, you know, the sales piece of it, but uh, end-to-end in some ways, also the delivery and, you know, the the rest of uh, the stuff that goes into it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was also a very unusual company and structure. So, you know, lots of things uh, to figure out. From a mindset perspective, I think what I realized was, um, you know, a couple of things, right? One is uh, when you scale from like looking at this in terms of your own targets or in terms of, you know, your own set of accounts, um, you're thinking of it very bottoms up in terms of, you know, you can go deep into an account, uh, but you're, you know, very much focused on that conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, uh, you know, became manager, uh, I was viewing things very much from a top-down perspective. You know, if if the company doesn't meet its quota, what does it mean, right? Like, what is the impact on the overall financials? Um, you know, what are the trends that I'm seeing across multiple customers from that same industry? And maybe, you know, is that a good industry to go after or not, mm-hmm. right? So you're then thinking much more uh, in terms of, I would say pattern recognition and then trying to amplify that pattern to predict the future. Um, so I would say that's kind of a big mental shift uh, that happened. No, I would agree. You know, it's it's more one track mind to a multi-track mind to where, all right, my, you know, my sales people are selling a lot of this type of business and, you know, we're seeing good conversion rates and high margins in that business. And so we want to kind of focus on that more as this other business that doesn't have those type of conversions or um, market available to us. But yeah, I didn't realize that you were running the whole show at that point, you know what I mean, in the India office. So that's that's amazing. I, I got to imagine that developed you as a leader, managing people, dealing with multiple personalities. Um, what, what would you say, you know, is the biggest challenge that you see with other businesses when, you know, you're in a leadership role and you have to actually lead a whole team of people, not just the salespeople. 
that transition? Yeah, so um, I think a couple of things, right? One was I was suddenly, um, you know, either directly or indirectly managing people who were uh, in some cases like more than a decade older than me. And that, um, you know, that, that meant that um, I struggled a little bit in terms of saying, you know, what should my own um, authority or my own role in some of those conversations uh, be, right? Um, I think the, se the second thing that I realized over a period of time was that at the end of the day, you know, the customer is in some ways the boss. And so I think being the conduit for uh, channeling that feedback, for channeling in, of course, the revenue, et cetera, means that it gives you a power which is beyond you know, just your age or your designation. And so it's useful um, to think of it in that context rather than thinking of it completely personally. Um, and I think uh, thirdly, uh, it also meant that you begin to then uh, think more deeply about, uh, you know, how different people from different backgrounds think and, you know, what matters to them, right? Like, mm -hmm. um, while everybody understands that, you know, there's compensation, there is a bonus, there are review cycles, uh, but there are lots of kind of softer powers uh, that people actually uh, care about, um, right? Or uh, softer levers. And I think it's useful to uh, be able to identify those and those could be depending on the person's function or depending on their personality. Um, so yeah, those were some of the things that uh, I kind of learned over that period. No, I love it. Um, culture is a huge piece of running any organization. And so <clears throat> it sounds like you figured out how to find people's motivation and include them in the culture at, at that office. You know, a, a good point you made too is you know, because I've oh, you know, I had success at a young age, right? And the only reason people listen to me is because I had the numbers to back it up, right? So I've been, I've always been very numbers driven. And uh, when I'm consulting my clients, you know, I, and a lot of times I'm consulting clients that are older than me, have been in business longer, have had more experience, you know. So I focus on the systems and the data that is generated by those systems, and improving that data. And once I improve the data, and that creates even more authority than I already have going into the job, you know what I mean? And so that's kind of where I'm focused on so I can kind of overcome that age difference or, you know, whatever the discrimination is at that point, you know what I mean? So um, one of the things that I wanted to, to talk about as well is, you know, I, I, I saw you promoting a book and it's called Heels to Deals. and um, you know, it's all these stories about women that have done these amazing things in business. And then I looked at, I was looking at the book on Amazon and I was like, oh, she's in the book. You know, they, they part of the book is about her. So can you kind of walk us through how that came about? Did the author reach out to you or were y'all already networked and she was writing this book or, you know, and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, so, um, you know, Heidi, who's the author of the book, she's, uh, of course, a wonderful, very inspiring woman. And um, when she set out to write the book, um, what she wanted to do was she wanted to bring out voices of 
a diverse set of women who've had like, you know, different experiences, have reached different levels of their careers because, um, and I think ultimately it boils down to this, right? Like when you think of a role model, for every person that role model and at every stage in your life, that role model looks different, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what she was accomplishing with the book was to bring together a set of people who could ideally be role models for women at you know different stages, different backgrounds, et cetera. Um, so we were connected on uh, LinkedIn uh, and, you know, she reached out to me through LinkedIn saying, hey, you know, I'm doing this project. Is this something that you would like to be a part of? And um, of course, she had, you know, I think uh, done her uh, research pretty well and she was making sure that she was bringing in as much uh, variety into that, uh, into the voices that she was capturing. Um, and I absolutely resonated with it. And one of the reasons why I resonated with it was I recognize the value that role models have had in my life, um, right? So like even early on in uh, when I was uh, an investment banker, uh, and I keep going back to that because that was a phase which, you know, as a first job and as a woman was kind of challenging, right? And mm -hmm. uh, for me, it was really useful and powerful to see that there was like, you know, one woman who was a managing director who everybody kind of really respected and, she had succeeded in that world, right? And so, mm -hmm. uh, and that gave me so much hope. It didn't matter whether, you know, I spoke to her or not on a daily basis. Um, so that's kind of uh, the equivalent that I wanted to be able to help create with that book uh, along with everybody's voices uh, that were going in. And uh, I got the opportunity to actually meet, um, you know, a lot of those women uh, during the book launch in Boston earlier this year. And it was just fantastic to see people, you know, everybody from like, you know, people in their mid twenties to, you know, a woman who's, you know, like in her seventies and mm -hmm. uh, everybody's had different journeys with different contexts. But when you bring that group together, the not that, hey, you know, what is the highest level you can achieve? But, you know, irrespective of what your context is, irrespective of what your current circumstances are, you can actually get to your dream. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's a really powerful message and I'm uh, really, really uh, grateful that, that, you know, I could be a part of that. No, I love it. I, it. It makes me think about all the different uh, female salespeople that I've had and managers in, in our organizational structure. And I just always felt that women were under, underutilized in sales because it, you know, especially like uh, in, in my kind of sales, which is door-to-door, -door, direct sales, call center, that type of stuff, very macho, very male-driven, you know what I mean? So, you know, women don't feel at home in that, um, in that type of space. And so what I noticed was when, once we promoted our first uh, female, assist, or female manager and she was running her own office, then all of a sudden our percentage of women to men went from like 10% to 90 to like 30 to 70. Because they, like you said, uh, they got to come in and see a woman in a leadership role, and then they were, you know, automatically felt a lot more safe about working there. You know what I mean? And uh, working in that type of environment, which was very high performance driven, and I imagine what you walked into too. You know what I mean? A lot of testosterone getting thrown around and stuff. So, um, so I, you know, as soon as I saw that, I was like, man, it would be cool to do do a book on women in sales, you know, 
because that's what the podcast is all about, building great sales teams or do an episode about women in sales too. And just kind of like open up that conversation about, Hey, how, you know, I, again, I believe they're underutilized because, you know, you guys have an ability to be a lot more empathetic with potential clients, stuff like that. You know, more of the um, intuitive sales, you know what I'm saying? Uh, than I think men do. We just have different skill sets, you know? And so uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there for women in sales in general. Yeah, so, and I think uh, one of the things that came out as we as I spoke to people from like, you know, 50s, 60s, 70-year-olds who'd been in sales was that, you know, today it's a connected world. We could be having this conversation on Zoom, but, you know, one of the big barriers was also how much sales meant travel. And, um, you know, I think some of those legacy issues have gone away, but I think people don't recognize that they've gone away. And so, um, you know, those careers still suffer. Um, I think you can be a good, successful B2B salesperson today without being on a plane every week uh, for like three, four days a week. Um, so, yeah. You know, it's uh, it, it's it's crazy that my wife's motivation for starting her business was the kids. So she she's a teacher, right? And she's got her master's in curriculum and instruction. And, uh, you know, so she taught at a public school. And because, you know, post-COVID, the teaching positions got so demanding, she was working 50, 60 hours a week, right? And so she came home upset, unfulfilled. And she noticed that, hey, I'm missing you know, the, the kids school play practice or to volunteer for this or dropping them off at school, you're having to drop them off because you have a flexible schedule. So she saw me being the entrepreneur working less than her, the public school teacher, you know, and making a fifth, a sixth of the money, but she was passionate about teaching. And so event, I started taking her to more and more of the business conferences that I go to. And eventually at work, she got inspired to start her own tutoring service, which services, um, homeschooled students and uh, tutors the parents and the student on their education uh, assessment and strategies and everything. And her whole reason for doing that was to work less, you know? <laughs> and so she's able to, because she's an entrepreneur now, you know, and it, it's exactly like you said, you know, B2B sales today versus 20 years ago, you just wouldn't have been able to raise kids and do B2B sales at the same time. You'd have to be traveling all the time. It wouldn't make sense. You know what I mean? And then, yeah. you know, there wasn't a lot of men lining up to stay at home with the kids either. So, you know, it was a different, different world. Right. And so I, I couldn't agree with you more that the opportunities out there to, you know, whether it's being an entrepreneur or being in sales and raising a family at the same time men or women is a, a lot more conducive now to, to careers and or businesses. So that's a, that's a huge point. So let's get into sales. You know, you obviously deal with a lot of sales organizations or companies that have these huge sales departments and stuff like that being in B2B sales. What do you think the number one issue is for those sales divisions right now? So um, I think uh, a couple of things, right? But if I were to just put that into one uh, single view of the world, it is that they have no way of connecting, you know, their past, their present uh, to build what they're building for the future, right? So 
What that means is they have like, you know, lots of data on what has happened historically. Um, they know what is going on if they look at like their current pipeline reviews, but they have no way of kind of bringing it together to accurately one, predict the future and to impact that future in terms of, you know, their projections, their, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, planning for their pipelines and doing uh, deal strategies, et cetera. Um, and the reason for that is two, right? One is the amount of data that is available to people today has increased multifold, right? Like, for example, mm -hmm. what Ringnan does is analyze sales conversations. And, you know, that data didn't exist uh, till maybe even five, six years back, right? So one is that data has increased tremendously. And two, uh, that has put a lot of pressure in terms of people being able to make better data-driven decisions. Um, and three, the environment today is changing so fast. Like, you know, in the last, you know, three years, we've had a big pandemic that has changed the way companies work, uh, the way people buy, the way people sell. Um, you know, right now we seem to be in the middle of an economic crisis. And again, you know, the narrative is changing every day. So the challenge is that you need to be able to not just contextualize your data, make those linkages once and for all, but they need to be flexible enough that as things change, you're actually getting those messages and reinventing yourself. So um, yeah, I think just the pace of uh, change is much faster uh, and the amount of data is much more. And so your need to actually be able to act on it is very, very high today. Yeah, I would agree. I think. Timing is everything, right? So when I built a sales program or I built my own in the past and I noticed, hey, we're, we're having quality issues, you know, we're not selling high enough package prices or whatever the case is, you know, I would tweak things in the sales program to create that result that I wanted, right? And that was my talent, but it would, it would take probably at least a month for that to actually affect the end the end data, you know? And so right. the idea, the idea that you have, okay, real-time data and you're able to adjust within the sales program, but more importantly, within the actual sales process or sales pitch, and then uh, use AI to kind of guide you is, is really cool to hear about. And so I've interviewed a few technology companies now and, um, you know, kind of one of the questions I like to ask because it challenges them a little bit, but at the same time, I've gotten some really amazing answers. Um, so one of the questions I'd like to ask is with AI and the way it's assisting salespeople right now in that sales process, do you think that eventually, especially like in B2B sales or sales that are done um, virtually, do you think AI is going to eventually be able to replace that salesperson? Um, I think yes and no, right? And I'm not just using that as a cop-out answer. Uh, I think <laughs> it's going to <laughs> uh, replace parts of the sales experience, uh, right? And there are going to be parts of the sales experience that are still human-driven. Um, so, you know, a few examples that come to mind in terms of parts of the sales experience that could get automated with AI, right? And of course, I think the answer also depends on the time horizon, right? Like, I think if you say, you know, what will happen 20 years out, all bets are off, right? Uh, especially right. with that which AI is developing. 
Um, but if I were to take more like a, you know, three to 10 year view, I would say what's going to happen most likely is we are going to see, um, you know, elements like say qualification, um, you know, some uh, types of discovery, right? Those are things that can actually happen in a more um, kind of asynchronous manner, uh, right? And those will, uh, you know, very likely get replaced or get augmented with AI, right? Um, then there are parts of it which are, I would like to call reverse discovery, right? Where the customer is trying to get more information, um, you know, and that again, we already see a lot of that is just out there. It's not even AI, right? It's just general information on websites. But mm. what is going to happen is that the nitty gritties and the details are what salespeople provide today, right? Like I've already done my research on knowing, hey, this is, you know, the two-liner of what your company does. But I have like more specific questions. I think a lot more of those specific questions are also going to get answered. And that's where AI is going to come in and be able to answer those contextually. Uh, but then there is the third part of it, right? Which is actually getting into the understanding of your particular use case, your business context, your internal decision-making process, uh, all of those, I think, will still require a more human layer to it. Um, and the other uh, lens with which I think about B2B selling in general is uh, what we see in B2C selling, right? Um, will, you know, the same trend probably comes to B2B selling with like a 10-year lag uh, in some that sense. That makes sense. Um, and so if you were to think of what you see in your own behavior as a buyer uh, for B2C products, uh, you will probably see uh, what that looks like today as what, uh, you know, B2B selling will look like in the future. Um, and so, again, like you can put the same lens on how, how has your experience of buying like, say, a razor blade changed, right? Like today, mm -hmm. very likely go on an e-commerce site and just buy it based on, you know, the reviews and everything else that you know. Or you have a membership package and it just comes in every month. Exactly. But uh, your experience of maybe buying a home, right, or a big ticket item hasn't changed that much, right? Like maybe you can do a virtual tour today, but very likely you still engage with maybe an agent of some sort, right? Mm -hmm. or, uh, so I would say that you can probably draw parallels to that in terms of how B2B selling will evolve. No, I would agree 100%. And what you noticed is, you know, by the time the lead gets to you, you know, like you said, they're so much more educated and then prepared for you. You know what I mean? So the actual sales process is so short now because by yeah. the time like AI or um, just the uh, qualification process has already happened, right? And yeah. uh, and then And then, yeah, in some cases it's replaced, you know, like, if you want internet right now, typically you don't talk to anyone. You just go to the website, you put in your information, see if it's available for you, and then you purchase it. And so um, I, would, I would agree in that sense too. The more high ticket items, then there's going to be some salesmanship required. But it, it really has come down to um, conversion rates, right? Because by the time the lead gets to you, the customer gets to you, you know, like our customer acquisition cost is roughly $1,200 to $1,500, right? or a closed customer. So the lead is probably closer to three, $400. And so when it gets to you, your conversion rate is 
basically your currency to, to, to the company at that point, you know what I mean? Depending on obviously, you know, our company has an opportunity structure, you know, we treat salespeople like humans, you know what I mean? They're not just a conversion rate, but that is going to be the metric that, that really gets pressed on there. You know, I, I, I do see both points, but I don't see how like, again, eventually you're talking to Jarvis and Jarvis is selling you on why to buy this house you know what I mean? <laughs> because of your 110 points of uh, information that they qualified you with because they, they have it all. You know what I'm saying? You know, e even now when you go to a website, your, your path on the way there and your path on the way out is tracked. And based on that, they're qualifying you to retarget you with advertising, you know? And so I don't know how you beat AI in that case, you know, um, Chris Bell, yeah. Chris Bell with uh, Connect and Sell. He was another, uh, you know, kind of people as a service company. Um, you know, he's, he says something interesting, which I still haven't researched yet. I need to take the time to research it, but he said that, that uh, the human voice has like 15,000 bytes of data in it or 1500, like, I think it was 15,000, but a character on a keystroke only has like five to seven bytes of data. And so when you talk about trusting a brand that you haven't talked to a person yet, that, that trust happens a lot faster when you talk to someone and that's why sales to exist. And that's why he believed that humans will always be part of the sales process, which is a, you know, a decent argument too, because of the trust factor, you know, it, but again, I trust Jarvis if I had the Iron Man helmet on. You know what I mean? <laughs> Tony Stark does, so it's good for me. <laughs> yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there is also the nuance of saying how, in some ways, right, like we've already gotten into the future. Like mm -hmm. today, if you were to buy a Zoom license for yourself, uh, right, you're not going to need to speak to a salesperson. Right. Um but the reason if you were buying the same Zoom license for an organization of like a thousand people, you're very likely going to speak to a salesperson. And it's not just about the product that you're buying. It's about the complexity of everything that a purchase means. And I think mm. that's kind of where B2B context remains different because you're then buying a product that's going to impact so many people. And there are so many nuances to that purchase decision, therefore. Um, and I think that's kind of maybe the other reason why, uh, you know, the sales process and the salesperson are going to exist, uh, especially in larger B2B uh, sales deals. No, I agree 100%. Yeah, when you put it in that context, a thousand licenses, that's a big, that's a huge purchase. And you're probably looking at four or five different companies at that point. So you're going to need a lot of education behind that decision. Um, so when we talk about wingman, what what does that surface all encompass? You know, is there levels to it? Um, just, I, I guess, tell us about wingman. <laughs> it's an easier way to say it. <laughs> sure. So um, maybe I'll just take a step back and talk about like, you know, what got me started on wingman. Okay. Um, so I was, uh, you know, doing my stint in B2B sales uh, at a company called Pioneer, which is, uh, you know, B2B fintech company doing cross-border transactions. 
And my challenge there was two things. One, um, I was finding it really hard to take the voice of customer back to my product and marketing teams. And partially because, you know, there was also a big geographic barrier between the product and marketing teams versus the sales team. So, you know, in, in that context, like, you know, the sales teams are all local. So in our case, um, you know, I was leading the sales team in India versus product and marketing teams were all centralized. They were all based in Israel. And so it was really hard to get that uh, voice across uh, to them. Um, and the second thing was that I had a few folks on my team who were doing really well, uh, but folks who weren't. And this is, you know, every sales team has that. Uh, but I could see that in terms of just looking at their effort, looking at their input metrics, you know, there wasn't a big difference between uh, those people, but the results were like 5x different. Um, wow. And to both of those questions, my, um, you know, my go-to thought used to be like, hey, only if I knew what was happening in the sales call or only if I could, you know, tell the product person that, hey, three out of 10 customers that I speak with ask for this product feature. And hey, here are like 30 second snippets of each of those requests, then it would make their life much simpler. It would make my life much simpler. And similarly, in the context of, you know, being able to understand why some reps weren't doing well, uh, I literally needed to know what they were doing on those calls. And that wasn't easy or possible for me. Um, so that's kind of where the quest with Wingman started. And so, you know, in a nutshell, what Wingman uh, does is it looks at every sales interaction, uh, you know, emails, calls, uh, video meetings, and tries to, um, you know, one, transcribe it, make that searchable and available, but more importantly, trying to help sales teams understand what's working, what's not working, how do I then go back and take these lessons to actually coach salespeople live during calls. So it's it doesn't stop with just saying, hey, I'll take the notes for you, but I'll also tell you that, hey, you know, if, for example, you ask a qualifying question around budget, uh, you know, your chances of uh, winning the deal increased by 30%. But then I'm taking that to the third step, which is next time when, uh, say, a person is about to close a call without having asked a budget-related question in that discovery, can I also prompt them and say, hey, do you want to now ask them about budget before you close the call? Or at the start of the call, uh, prompt them to say, hey, you know, this is where you should be setting an agenda. Uh, or during the call, I could you know, essentially have a Jarvis for each of those salespeople where mm -hmm. if they get stuck on a question around, you know, some technical detail around a product feature or, hey, how are you different from that 25th competitor of yours? They are not stuck with saying, hey, I'll come back to you on that, right? Um, you know, their version of Jarvis or Wingman is going to show them a prompt which tells them, hey, you know, this is how you answer this. So these are your talking points. Um, so yeah, so that's that's what Wingman is in a nutshell, a Wingman for salespeople. I love it. One of my first experiences with a sales team was I was a marketing manager for a call center. And uh, so I would, I would watch the, man the sales manager feed the salesperson and they would use a, uh, a feature called Barge. And so the salesperson could hear the manager, but the customer couldn't. And so there was these little pauses in between everything that the salesperson said. And so the idea that this creates, like you said, a Jarvis um, for the 
salesperson, which is essentially the sales manager in their ear, but it's data driven, which is beautiful because then it's not like, oh, my way is the best way because I'm the sales manager, you know, <laughs> and we all know what that's like, but it just, it makes a ton of sense during the sales process. And, and yeah, you know, we train so hard on scripts. Well, it's because they have to literally memorize the sales process or where they're at in, in that process versus having it in front of them on the screen where they can see, okay, this is what I need to do next. That alone can probably increase conversion rates by five to 10%. Yeah. And they can be much more present in those conversations. Mm -hmm. I love that. Yeah. You're not using both brains, your memory, and then your uh, ability to be present with the customer. You know, one of the things we've talked about through this whole podcast is that Jarvis analogy. And I think that I just want to point out that that's a huge selling tool right there, right? Because it's, it may be without that, it may be difficult to say what wingman does for you. But when you just say, it's like Jarvis with Tony Stark, you know, it just all of a sudden the, the, the prospect understands right away. And it's those little analogies or those, you know, pop culture references that all of a sudden, you know, explain the whole thing pretty much, you know, and, uh, you know, make it fun too. Yeah, absolutely. And everybody loves a little bit of a superhero in their lives. Absolutely. So what's, uh, I guess, what's next for Wingman? What's the, the future look like for you guys? Yeah, so, um, you know, we are now Wingman by Clary. So, uh, you know, we got acquired a few months back and, um, you know, in in that context, uh, we now have the ability to not just be uh, helping people with their present, but also helping them understand what happened in their past and what that means for their future, uh, right? So in a nutshell, uh, today with being part of the platform, what it enables everybody to do is uh, just to understand, hey, where were we, for example, last year during this quarter, you know, on, you know, the 12th day of the quarter or the 12th week of the quarter or whatever. And therefore, you know, when I'm asking that question, it is because I want to know where do I This is being part of a story which helps sales teams understand their past, act on their present, mm -hmm. and be able to predict and influence their future. So that's, that's, you know, one part of it. Um, I think for Wingman being now part of the larger platform, it also means that we now have the ability to reach many more uh, sales organizations across different, uh, you know, sizes, shapes, uh, industries um, to actually help them with this process. Um, and I think uh, from a more macro perspective, what uh, we are seeing is AI is evolving really fast. I think we've all seen those, uh, you know, AI generated art pieces and uh, everything like that. Mm -hmm. um, but what that means is that the ability to take all of this unstructured data from sales calls and convert it into something structured uh, could hopefully uh, in the future uh, and not very distant future mean that you're no longer having salespeople uh, do any type of data entry into CRMs and you're getting like that perfect information uh, and that perfect report that we all want. Um, so, yeah. You mean, you mean salespeople aren't good at data entry? <laughs> <laughs> 
uh, that's their favorite pastime gym. Yeah, sure. exactly. No, I, I love that. I love the future for you guys too. You know, I'm curious if uh, from a data perspective, you know, when you, does that data go from the company back to you guys or do y'all kind of cut it off there? Like a privacy issue? Or are you guys using that data to create trends in the sales industry in general? You know what I mean? Like you guys could really tell some stories with that, you know, the cumulative data and yeah. uh, basically give the perfect pitch every time it feels like, you know what I mean? So I wonder, I wonder if uh, there isn't some, and in the, I guess this would be a lot smaller, but basically, you know, okay, I, I have a, a roofing business. What is the best pitch for my roofing business based on all this data that y'all have? You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think what we, uh, uh, you know, what we do today, and I think what also helps our customers without, uh, you know, putting them at risk is, um, you know, when we look at the data and the trends, we look at it on an anonymized basis. Uh, right, so that when we are trying to draw out these, um, you know, you also don't want to be so specific that uh, you know a competitor might uh, get unfair advantage, for example, right? Right. Um, so we we kind of make sure that uh, all of that information is collected and collated um, on an anonymized basis. So mm -hmm. uh, it's still giving you useful information. It could give you useful information, maybe based on you know deal sizes or sales cycles, etc. But it's it's not really uh, doing anything that might give away the identity of the data uh, or the identity of the people behind the data. Yeah, um, but yeah, I think uh, overall uh, that's super important because, uh, like you said, right? Like, otherwise, it's always been the case of you know do this because I said so as the sales manager, mm -hmm. and uh, you want people to have the ability to believe in knowing what has succeeded rather than uh, just anecdotes of what success has looked like for other people. No, I love that because so much of our training currently in being in direct sales is being taught by uh, a sales manager or a trainer. And so you just have to trust that, that, that they're right, you know, and you know, we're human. So we'd rather see the numbers in front of us, at least the analytical ones like me, you know, <laughs> would rather see the numbers in front of us make decisions based on that. So I think that's huge for wingman. So yeah, and I the other thing that people, um, under calibrate on is you know the uh, variability that comes in because of the persona that you are selling to so even if you're selling like say you know fifty thousand dollar deals to say a vp of sales versus you're selling a fifty thousand dollar deal to a vp of customer support uh you know you're going to see very different uh, uh you know personalities very different decision making processes and maybe uh, differences in what they respond to in a conversation, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, while your manager might have best intentions, they might have like 20 years of experience, but, you know, today everybody switches jobs every two years or so. And uh, what that means is that, you know, the ICP that they might have sold to, and if that's not exactly the same that you are selling to, their experience might not translate as well. So, yeah, I think uh, trusting the data is always helpful. Yeah, that customer avatar is huge. 
you know, every, every campaign that we do, we put together our perfect customer avatar and do everything we can to market to them. So backing that with data on how to sell them, it's going to be huge. So the heels and deals book, I think that's a big deal. That's something that, you know, a 16 year old woman could read 200, 300 years from now. You know what I mean? And obviously she's going to be having it read to her, or like input it. I don't know, <laughs> you know, the technology, who knows? But the point is, is that's a, to me, that's a legacy piece. Your story is hopefully going to go on for generations and generations, right? And so one of the questions I always ask on the show is, you know, what does legacy mean to you? And what legacy are you going to leave behind? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the first and biggest part of it for me is do no evil, uh, right? And I think uh, in today's context, a lot of that uh, in my mind is uh, around, you know, doing no evil to our planet or, you know, doing as less of it as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it, it sounds maybe uh, somewhat uh, passive and, uh, you know, more negative than positive in terms of, you know, not doing something versus doing something. But, uh, yeah, I think that's what is top of mind for me currently. No, that makes a lot of sense. And you know what? It's a value that you have. And what I notice is, you know, typically the answers are centered around, around values versus like, oh, you know, wingman is going to be my legacy or, um, you know, the, the fortune that I leave behind or, you know what I mean? It's, it's more about the values that get passed on. And uh, so I would agree with you hundred percent. That's why we're in solar, you know, trying to get, get ourselves on uh, renewable energy, right? That's one of the campaigns that we have in our business. So nice. Trudy, it's been a, a pleasure. It's been a really informative and uh, I would say intellectually challenging conversation, <laughs> which is great, you know, because when you think about all the facets that go into AI and then how they're going to affect sales in general or just business in general, um, I think you have a lot of context on that. So I appreciate you sharing that with us today. It was fun talking to you, Doug. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So we're going to wrap it up for this episode of Building Great Sales Teams. But as always, let's get building. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Building Great Sales Teams. Be sure to execute on what you just heard and let's get building. As always, remember to subscribe and leave a review wherever you consume podcasts. You can also head on over to buildinggreatsalesteams.com and sign up for our newsletter to stay up to date with everything that's going on with the podcast. See you next time.